Okay, guys, uh, welcome back to another episode of The Political Adventurist. Uh, I'm here with my friend Ryan. He's another very politically smart person. We have a lot to talk about today on, uh, as we can see, with the election issues that are currently holding up uh, this country, along with uh, foreign intervention uh, possibilities and uh, just our foreign policy as a whole. So before we begin, obviously, I know you well. We went to high school together. Just tell the people a little bit about yourself, what you're majoring in, any information you'd be cool with giving out. Just short introduction. Um, I don't know. I'm a, a poli-sci major. I, I might change that. Uh, went to high school with Anthony. You know, I know a little bit about politics, you know, here and there. Uh, yeah. And um, I just hope I can offer a unique perspective on current events domestically and in foreign policy. All right, cool beans. So yeah, let's, uh, let's get right into it. Sure, cool beans. Uh, so I'm going to obviously start this off with what's kind of dominating the sphere right now, uh, which would be the question of obviously the election, who's going to win the, the issues with the holdup, mail-in ballots, absentee ballots. But the first question is possibilities of voter fraud. You know, what areas are we seeing it in? You know, how could it possibly be represented? I'm just going to ask for your thoughts on that, what you're seeing based on the posts also, obviously the Trump base has kind of made a very strong uh, stance against any potential occurrences of voter fraud, which may or may not be just simple mistakes or actual fraud. So just your thoughts on that situation. I'll just give my thoughts. If anything, I agree with you too much. I'll play devil's advocate. So go on. Um, yeah, well, I think uh, all the, the, the situation about whether there is voter fraud on mostly it's being blamed and called on behalf of the Democrats committing it. Um, uh, the way a voter fraud would have to work in order to rig an election like that, it would have to happen on a systemic and massive scale. Um, like, uh, which is con which like the thing about that is, um, regardless of all the posts that you've seen, regardless of all of like the, uh, the memes they make about Michigan gaining a hundred thousand ballots or something overnight, regardless of that weird video of some guy in a forest burning Trump ballots, the, the truth is in order to rig a national election like that, the Democrats would have to be doing it systematically, which usually means it's like instructed from a, a higher up level in the Democratic Party echelon, as in like they're instructing people to do it. They're, they're telling certain operative, uh, not operative, certain like poll workers, this is how you destroy ballots and all that stuff. And the thing about that is I do not think they're doing that because the Democratic Party doesn't really have it in them to do that. They're not strong enough. They don't care enough they honestly don't give a shit enough about the election the party not the, the voter base they don't give a shit about uh, enough about the election and beating trump to do that and it shows it shows mostly in the fact that i mean the biden campaign um almost lost what i'm sorry should have been a layup election in the fact that um like regardless of your thoughts on either presidential candidate in either presidential party if you are in a looming economic crisis and a global health pandemic, normally the incumbent president would always lose. But the Biden campaign decided regardless that they were going to undermine the key demographics that makes a democratic coalition, namely Latino voters and black, um, black voters by not campaigning for them and um, not campaigning for them and essentially like not caring such that when states like florida and ohio and texas got called which uh florida especially i would say was a state that easily could have turned blue um because of this things like the ballot initiative for 15 dollars minimum wage 
Um, essentially, Joe Biden did, ran an awful campaign, so much so that, like, I don't think the Democrats were serious enough about winning this election to put effort into voter fraud, much less like the fact they didn't actually put effort into get out to vote drives for like um, black and brown people. So, yeah. So, I don't, there's no voter fraud. Yeah, yeah, I have a similar kind of point to that. I see really no direct evidence. I think for the 150,000 votes that were counted, I believe it was in both Michigan and Wisconsin that you saw, or maybe just Michigan. We'll say with just Michigan. Um, I think it was, a, I believe they added a zero where they shouldn't have. I think that was just a simple counting mistake. Yes, conspiracy... that was a... Yeah, so cons- conspiracy... That was like a, I think it was like yeah. ahead, Decision go... Desk HQ thing. Yeah, like that. it was that. Um, essentially... Yeah, the the red mirage thing, like people knew about that for a while. Mm-hmm. That uh, there's, I don't think the the claims of fraud are really valid. At least. Yeah, so I, I think more substantial evidence definitely needs to be seen. I think a simple recount, you know, despite conspiracy theorists definitely jumping all over that. And I've definitely been in that aisle, you know. I've been quick to look at every little event and say that this could be, you know, somewhat, you know, modifiable. But I think. I think you raise a few fair points. I think you talk about like the 13 keys that a historian on, I believe it was CNN, produced. It was uh, outstanding. It was like who is the like the factors that decide the president. It would be outstanding economic crises or growths. It would be who is the incumbent. It is um, specific campaigning in states. But I think I'm gonna. I, I would disagree with you on what you said about the how exactly voter fraud work. I don't think it would need to be nation or widespread, I believe you kind of referred to. Um, I feel like it could take place in specific battleground states and be kind of a little bit more of a local issue that a party could have a little bit more sway in. So I feel like while, yes, there's definitely a, you know, it's, it's very naive or very impossible to think that it could be in a, a nationally wide thing, but I think entirely ruling out that there's statewide intervention, state-based intervention is a little irrational. Just your thoughts on that, like Arizona, whatever. Um, I would say that, like, um, that is true. I, I think you'd say that um, if there were to be state-level uh, fraud, I think, like, it, it could definitely be considered from the national level, like, like national Democratic operatives, but it would have to be committed, obviously, by local people in Democratic parties in states like Michigan or Wisconsin and everything. But the thing is, like, again like the the they didn't do that like what i'm trying to say is like the reason why states like um let's say pennsylvania which i believe is probably going to go democrat pennsylvania um michigan and minnesota as far as i know and arizona the reason why they all swung narrowly blue had like nothing to do with state democratic parties it had nothing to do with that it had to do with local organizations that were or local um progressive politicians that were organizing and um uh, trying, trying to get, get out to vote rallies, despite the fact that the Biden campaign did not do that. So let's say in like Arizona, which as far as I know, I think is going to go blue. Um, I think like AP called it a while ago. Mm-hmm. I'd see, uh, certain reports say that the Biden campaign did not do as much as like a group called LUCA, L-U-C-H-A, which was a group that was organizing uh, Latino voters for like almost a decade in order to like st- stop certain draconian immigration policy. And like a certain Maricopa, Maricopa County Sheriff, I forget his name, in order to oust him and create a more um, progressive, like a better immigration policy. And that, when, once that was over, because I think they succeeded in doing that a year or two ago, 
they were they use that organizational that that organization decided to focus on helping Democrats win in Arizona and flip the state blue. Um, similarly, in Minnesota, a state which Trump almost won, like less than a point, 2016 with uh, Hillary Clinton, um, progressives like Keith Ellison, the Attorney General, afterwards restructured this like huge electoral um, thing that allowed for much easier access to voting for people, and namely. U.S. Representative Ilhan Omar drove substantial get out to vote efforts that was like essentially she was knocking doors from like September and never stopped. The Biden campaign did not knock doors at all. And a similar thing occurred with like uh, Representative Rashida Tlaib in Detroit, Michigan. Those are things that operated outside of the Democratic Party. Those are things that operated because those representatives and the people that backed those representatives kind of cared about those voters and everything. While the Biden campaign, I mean, they kind of just looked at the polls and assumed they had those states in the bag. So once again, like um, the the state by state basis of why things were won, honestly, comes down to specific get out to vote drive efforts that um, had nothing to do with the Biden campaign, but also had nothing to do with voter fraud. Mm -hmm. So I think you bring up a, a very good point about that. But I feel like that kind of transitions into my big issue with Biden. And personally, I see him, if I were to compare him to, say, a past president, I would say I would look at him like, like Jimmy Carter a little bit, someone who cares about the science, cares about you know new energy, and has progressive-minded reforms. But I feel like the issue that we're seeing with the Democrat Party is likely going to lead to rifts, is that they're pretty decentralized. There isn't a small winner circle. And you talk about selector theory, which is this idea that in order for a leader to remain in power, he needs to have a small winner circle and a very relatively big selector which is the people that choose who the leader is so i think that the issue with that you described biden campaign is not really polling and not really actively encouraging voter turnout which was the highest i think it's ever been um leads to i think door knocking operations specifically yeah obviously. like the trump uh, apparently the trump campaign door knocked a lot mm -hmm. and biden barely at all yeah so it's it's but yeah so with the biden campaign i think i'm seeing a decentralization of influence you have various senators and attorney general you cited so that's the again that just kind of led into the big issue that i have with him is that you know my question is and this i guess you can answer do you believe that he can truly follow up strongly on the promises that he made without stepping on some of his other constituents because we have to look at the democrat party has an environmentalist constituent and then they have a moderate constituent and we can see this with the albeit questionable he has said he didn't want to he didn't want to stop fracking pennsylvania he said that but he has also said in the past that he did want to stop it so we can see a little bit of a rift and aoc did attack him during the first presidential debate on not wanting to stop fracking so i guess kind of like a little side question before i continue with the election issue segment what do you think about the decentralization or the big tent of the democrat party as it is um i think it comes down to and this is true the fact that the democratic party since 2008 um, has decided to remake their coalition to include a specifically one key demographic which is college educated people mostly college educated white people now there's a quote from chuck schumer that was like in 2016, before Hillary lost, he was like, for every blue-collar worker we lose in Pittsburgh, we're going to gain two uh, white-collar workers in the Philadelphia suburbs. Repeat that for Ohio, Illinois, Wisconsin. Now, they, that wasn't true, but it's panning out to be the strategy that, that they're taking in the future. So, mm -hmm. Because um, Biden represents that strategy. And it, almost, it only barely worked. Like, the Democratic coalition nowadays is like, it's turning into only that. 
while even things that people thought was like the bread and butter of the Democratic Party, like union workers in like those Rust Belt states, like even Latino um, populations and Latino workers in the Florida, Texas, and um, I mean, even partially black workers, but I don't think that's substantial. Um, they're not, they're either turning to Trump or they're just deciding not to vote. So I do think that the idea of a big tent coalition uh, really does not mean big tent coalition because Biden and the people that back Biden and the people that are going to be in Biden's administration do not, they're not going to pursue a progressive agenda. They're not going to do anything like a progressive agenda, especially if they have a Republican Senate. That'll be their excuse for not wanting to do it. But even before this was like a, 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 a bad turnout for Democrats, they were considering having people like former governor of Ohio, John Kasich, in the administration. And that guy like explicitly ran with like anti extreme anti-labor policies. And I believe like tried very hard to like outlaw abortion in Ohio. Mm -hmm. So the big tent theory is not a big is not like um, it is not the Democrats actually saying we're going to try and work with the progressive or socialist wing of the party it is explicitly we don't we're not chasing those votes anymore. And that is mostly because the Democratic Party is bought off by donors who would not ever like to see those progressive policies put in. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we'll see what happens to the Democratic Party. I mean, I think that's destruction. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point you bring up. And I think it's a little bit why Bernie Sanders hasn't been as successful as he would ought to or he would want to be. I know it's kind of a weird point, but I feel like his policies would obviously directly threaten the donors of the Democrat Party. And I feel like like with regards to Hillary Clinton, who isn't as like economically left leaning as Bernie Sanders, obviously, uh, one that even though there were, there was a few there were a few speculations that Bernie Sanders did win more votes in the uh, the nomination. So uh, this is obviously in 2016. So I think it's interesting the point that you bring up that uh, this illusion of being for or a slight illusion. I don't want to sound like usually Republican traditional conservative. This uh, supposed illusion of progressivism and kind of using the Republican Senate, which could very well flip this election. I think it's four seats up for grab in both sides, uh, or both houses. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I haven't really kept up to date on the. Uh, I know the House obviously retained, um, but I think that's an interesting point you bring up. So I think with that done, I'm going to move on to because I think we touched on this. Uh, Mail-in ballots and absentee ballots. The voter turnout this year is, or this election has been way higher than ever and this is due to obviously a lot of i believe democrat-led um pushes for alternate forms of voting so i think so before we before i give my opinion i would i just want you to try to assess or obviously try to you're going to assess the pros and cons of a mail-in mail-in ballots early voting absentee voting these new options to vote you know the good the good and the bad and if one truly outweighs the other because this very well as determining the election. I'm not saying determining because obviously it's still voting, obviously, but um, things like that. I think an important point to bring up for voter fraud, which we talked about before, is that another big issue is that Republican legislatures in specific states like Arizona, uh, may, or I believe Wisconsin, Michigan too, uh, pushed for a system where uh, votes would be, or early votes, absentee ballots would be counted after the or they would be counted on the same day so not to count too early so that could be the reason why we're seeing certain buying spikes but that's just kind of a side point so uh just what do you think about the new facets of voting the new modes of it and then we'll kind of go back and forth on that 
Um, I mean, I think it's fine. I really, I see no issue with expanding voting rights across the country. Um, uh, voting rights being like forms of voting and everything. I mean, there is substantial evidence that shows that thing, uh, the voter uh, registration laws, voter ID laws, all these types of uh, laws meant to like do something for the election was essentially just um, laws implemented to keep certain minority groups, especially black people in the mm -hmm. South, from voting. I, I'm not sure if this is true, but I, I think this is true. This is how ridiculous it can be in Texas. I think it's like, I've heard this again. It's uh, I'm not sure if it's true, but I believe it is. You can't solicit people to vote. Like you can't set up a, a little uh, little table outside of like a supermarket and ask people to vote. That's illegal wow. in Texas, which is a pretty. I think I I'm, I I might be wrong, um, but I've heard that, and um, obviously it's easy to fact check. But um, yeah. So and if things like that is clearly not really meant to like provide any sort of concerns for election integrity. And then obviously, in my opinion, um, more access to voting um, in the forms of absentee ballots or early voting is definitely a good thing. And I mean, especially because of how the Democrats performed, I mean, I would even say it's like a it's like something that a, a party could capitalize on. Like mm -hmm. like uh, Republicans, like they five million more votes were added to Donald Trump um, this election and a lot more obviously were added to Democrats as well. Mm -hmm. But the fact that like that happened. It doesn't mean that like um, more voting would be a, a problem for either party. It just means that Democrats should probably Democrats should consider building a better coalition. And I think that the kind of partisan thing. Yeah. So I think that that's a very good pro of what you're saying is the um, obviously the increase of voter turnout that every single person that has the ability to vote definitely should be able to vote. I think that's a very interesting point. I think that's also what the founding fathers desired. I think there was a quote somewhere that said every citizen should vote or every citizen must vote, something like that. I know that was a very democratically uh, embraced ideal. I guess if I were to bring up a counterpoint to that, since I would agree that I do like these alternate forms, um, I think that what the when the founding fathers um, kind of look, took a look at this, obviously these new these forms of voting and obviously said that, you know, every person who has the ability to vote should vote, I don't think they factored in the progress of technology. You know, there are new ways to, um, as obviously computer software is modernized, there could be, could be very well, I'm not going to say that there are, but there could be uh, ways to intervene and interfere with the certain like absentee. So, so for example, mail-in ballots, if you're not voting in person, it's not, you know, entirely uh, I guess you could say physically certifiably assured that it's you voting. You could fraud addresses. I remember there's a few things. So, for example, like zoning with schools. In certain spe in specific instances, uh, certain families were able to um, report different addresses, and were and their kids were able to go. I think this was especially true for like Bay Academy versus Bay Ridge Prep and those schools. That's just what I know. Uh, that you were able to, which was obviously very risky, as it's very a lot of legal consequences that you were able to kind of um, lie about, slightly lie about your address a little bit. So I think that with these increased opportunities to vote, I'm going to obviously give you plenty of chances to respond. Um, with, these, with this increased opportunity to vote, I think with this increased window of time as well, I think there's an increased opportunity for potential mistakes to be made as it's an overload or maybe overloading issues and uh, potential fraud. So just a kind of devil's art, devil's ad, devil's advocate argument. So obviously you can uh, respond to that. Um, well, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure like if there's like substantial like significant evidence to that. If I were to say 
there is a lot of problems with voting in this country, but it again um, comes down more less to like the the possibility of specific individualized instances of voter fraud, which is individualized, which means isn't system systematic, which means it isn't honestly like that bit large scale of problem can, can um, compared to like consistent voter disenfranchisement. So like um, obviously there was that one uh, court ruling in Texas that upheld one ballot drop off location in Harris County, Texas. Harris County has four million people. I think it's like uh, it's either Houston or, uh, or Austin. So a big city. It, the county has one drop off location for ballots, which is pretty insane and speaks to the fact that if there is any sort of voting problem with voting in this country, it is the fact that um, it is not easy enough to do instead of the fact that it's it might be so easy to do that people might decide to write in, you know, 10 ballots with uh, with their dead relatives on it. Like, I think that's kind of a, a ridiculous yeah, I, I think the compromise that we can make is that we can uh, maybe allocate some kind of funding. Obviously, we can we have the ability to do this. We have one of the world, world's strongest economies. It shouldn't be unreasonable to assume that we can inject some funding or certain state governments can inject funding into increasing the amount of polling uh, of uh, voting locations, I feel. And I feel like this would kind of um, slightly uh, mitigate the need for early voting as it would make voting more accessible. But um, I still, I, no, I, I totally agree that in the long term, I do agree with, or in the, in the overall issue, I do agree with mail-in voting, absentee ballots. If there should be a way to get your say into the country, despite, you know, what you've done, criminal records in the past, and this is obviously another debate, I guess I'll play devil's advocate, I guess it'll be the next question, is the concept of certain people not deserving to vote based on how much they contribute or what they've done in the past, what do you think it should, should it just be an inherent right totally for everyone to vote or should there be specifically more district obviously we have background checks things like that so just i guess kind of like a follow-up question what do you think of that um no i think i think everyone should be allowed to vote i think um uh oftentimes these arguments like if you want to they try and frame it in a very cynical and um the uh, opposition to this idea they would try and frame it in a very cynical and like kind of awful way of framing it where they'd be like oh so you'd want the boston bomber to vote and like you know that's besides the point like the boston bomber is one person there are millions of black people and um also white people and also latinos and other ethnicities who are incarcerated for like drug charges that are nonviolent, mm -hmm. and in jail especially but also for a lot of them when they're out of jail or when they're on parole they're not allowed to vote like i've spoken i've spoken to a guy when i was doing some work for a campaign about this and he was like yeah i can't vote i'm on parole and i was like I didn't know, like, and this is New York State. This is, like, supposedly, like, one of the liberal capitals of the country. And the guy's like, um, I'm not allowed to vote because I'm on parole or I was in jail. One of those things. And I was like, I'm so sorry. It's so fucked up. I didn't know it was like that. Mm -hmm. And so with that in mind, like, yeah, I would say um, there really shouldn't be any sort of a, a reason why someone shouldn't be allowed to vote. The, most, the worst of the worst in this country um, being allowed to vote, like, you know, uh, Ted Kaczynski. Right, uh, is not going to outweigh the, the many people, the many people who um, who uh, who should be allowed to vote but are incarcerated for certain things. Mm -hmm. I think when it comes to yeah, I think that that now brings up another question, which I totally agree with that point. You know, what defines a crime? If a crime is just smoking pot or you know trying psychedelics, if it's you know fucking illegal in that state, you know, does that really deserve you to be in like? 
like a slum behind bars, you know, and like stripped of your right to vote and your right to be seen as almost an equal person. So yeah, I think that totally brings up that right. Mm. I actually talked about that with Max, and him and I both agree that there's a definite need for um, incarceration reform. What exactly defines someone worthy of jail? Should it just be limited to you know endangering another person or exerting your influence on another person? Obviously, use whatever philosophical language you want, but I would agree with your position there that yes, despite criminal records, people are subject to change, and one example should not define a mass of people or everyone with a criminal record. So that's I think that's a very good point that you bring up. Okay, I wanted to move into the next part of the election segment, which would be the Trump response. So this is the question of stopping counting the ballots versus um, keep counting and see what happens. I think. A little bit of a stupid thing that Trump is doing, and I personally, whatever, this is obviously updates for up to debate, and that's going to happen, but I'm, I'm keeping this civil, obviously. I personally wanted Trump to win. I see no real, I don't, I don't think Biden's going to mean the end of the world. I just personally wanted, whatever, that's a policy debate. Anyway, um, the question of what he's doing with the Supreme Court asking to stop the counting of votes because it's past the day of the election, you know, what do you think about that? I obviously I have a feeling of what you're going to say, but you know, just kind of state what you think. I'll try to play devil's advocate if I can. If you know, college will let me stay here for it. You know, but um, just what do you think about that issue going on? The counting, the Supreme Court, you know, things like that. I mean, I mean, obviously there's no real grounds for him saying to stop the count, but um, more importantly, I believe if uh, if he were to stop the count right now he would still lose. Like, I mean, the way Nevada's looking and the way Arizona's looking, um, it's there's no clear path to victory for him unless he gets them to keep counting in Arizona and Nevada and also hope that he actually won those states, mm-hmm. but stop counting in, what, uh, Pennsylvania? Pennsylvania, Michigan, yeah, Wisconsin. Like, it's, yeah. like, that was at the time when just throw out those ballots. Yeah, yeah, that was, so, yeah. I remember watching CNN, which obviously I don't really like watching major news platforms. I really like independent journalism. Um, but I remember them having a good point about that intellectual inconsistency that he wants to stop counting here and start counting here. So I think obviously that that same argument that you're bringing up, I believe Eric Chalico also brought up in his story that if he stopped counting now, he would lose, you know, by thousands, tens of thousands. So, um... I think maybe, let's try to put this in a hypothetical situation here, I think maybe the goal that he's desiring is to invalidate, possibly, I don't know if he even can do this, kind of just something I'm going off the top of my mind, past, I want to say, maybe 2, 3 a.m. when he felt he was securely winning in those battleground states. So what do you think about that, if you kind of um, look at it from a strategic standpoint? Because obviously Trump doesn't want to lose. I don't think it's his objective to stop counting when he's losing. So let's assume that we rewind time to 2, 3 a.m. I was actually up until like 3.30. What do you think about like him stopping at a period or a point in time when it was deemed past election day? I mean, obviously, I, in my opinion, I think that's like wrong. Uh, those, the, there's no proof that those ballots were invalid. And there's no, because of that, there's at least no systemic proof. I mean, and also like any sort of proof on Instagram that it's just pictures of weird things that could have been faked is like not verifiable Mm -hmm. so obviously there's no he has no moral grounds and he has no legal grounds for stopping the counting of those ballots um yeah there's really nothing else more to it i mean i think that strategically it could work 
because he packed he did pack the Supreme Court. And the, the thing is, if he were to and this would be it would be stealing the election if he did that, um, you know, people wouldn't do anything like they're not going to like burn down the White House. They really they don't have the the thing is, um, uh, liberal media pundits don't have the capacity to do that. A lot of them would probably just post about it. And um, there's no institutional power to do that. Like the most threatening thing that could happen from that is labor strikes. Mm -hmm. But uh, it, I don't think the labor doesn't seem like they would do it. Maybe they would. And honestly, if they if they would, did, that would probably be a, a good thing. But um, besides that, if it doesn't seem like they would do it, like it doesn't seem like there'd be enough backlash mm -hmm. that would threaten like the sources of power, then he could probably pull it off and it would actually work. Uh, in a Bush v. Gore type scenario. Yeah, I obviously a lot of parallels have been drawn to that, but I don't think it's really so down to the wire as it is now. Because if you look at Bush v. Gore, I believe it was down to like a handful or maybe even one, a handful, I'll say. I don't really know exactly. I don't remember the specifics of it. You could probably enlighten me, but um, like a handful of districts in Florida that needed a recount. So I don't think it's that level of specific, specific, specificity, whatever you want to call it, that level of, you know, yeah. micro level. But um, it's because it's happening in obviously Arizona and Michigan. That's where he wants those recounts to happen. I think it's a good point. You know, as again, someone who did want Trump to win, uh, I am disappointed by what he's doing with the Supreme Court. I find it a little bit definitely an abridgment of democracy to an extent. Um, so I think that's definitely an issue, you know, that obviously can't really be mitigated you would have to let those votes count and i think again the point that i brought up earlier that it's really the fault if you want to look at it, if i want to paint myself as a republican strategist for a second it's really the fault of the republican legislators for not having the foresight to allow these votes to be counted when they come because then it would be a reverse situation if the early votes and the absentee ballots and the mail-in ballots were counted when they arrived we would see a quick Biden lead, and then obviously election day votes, which usually favor Trump, which CNN, I believe, said, um, would kind of push, push that back to a little bit more level, maybe even contesting flipping certain states. So, again, if you look at it from a strategic standpoint, yes, he could try to theorize, because he has packed the core. I believe it's like, what, 6-3 to three or 7-2 to two conservative six judges? 6-3. Yeah. After uh, Amy Coney After Barrett and obviously Kavanaugh. And so, um yeah, I think it's strategically mistakes were made, but I think that is a strategical possibility. But I just don't want to see that, honestly. I don't think it's seriously. Obviously, this is at at this point, this is Trump's kind of ego, I believe. Um, I don't think realistically, looking at it from a Republican standpoint, it's not going to be the end of the world if Biden wins. You know, so. Um, oh, totally not. Because you guys will have the Senate. I mean, the Republicans will win. Like, I'm pretty sure. I mean, the fact that they couldn't even flip the seat in Maine suggests that they, there's no shot at the Democrats winning the Senate. Mm -hmm. And if there's no shot at the Democrats winning the Senate, and Joe Biden was already in the primary, not really willing to change anything, told that in a speech one time, it's famous, he was like, nothing would fundamentally change under my presidency. He said that, and um, he has an excuse for it now. Nothing's going to happen, except possibly austerity, yeah. which is you know, bad. In my opinion. I think that's a very good point that you bring up, that, yeah, no, this excuse of the Red Senate definitely could, you know, mitigate some changes that the Democrats could be wanting or illusion or, you know, creating this false illusion that they want or something like that. So I definitely like that point. Okay. Um, next segment is I want to talk about foreign intervention in the election, which would be the last election segment. This is going to kind of move on to the foreign policy thing, which I know you have 
a lot to say in that. Um, so, um, what do you what what areas specifically counting votes, uh, specific statistic representation, um, maybe like specific uh, websites or something like that? Which area of the election do you think foreign intervention? Because it has been confirmed. It was confirmed during the or a little bit after, maybe a little bit before the second presidential debate that there would be some level of intervention in the election. First question would be, um, what area do you think that would exist in if it did? That's a um, tricky question. I don't think, I mean, I'm not sure it would. Are, are you basing it off of the idea that, uh, that there was some, was a Russian interference in 2016 or that there's a Chinese interference? Like, like be specific like what nation because uh, in either case i don't think there's any interference. well i think the nations that were cited when the second presidential debate was airing or around that time i remember them saying was russia and iran and i know russia definitely say what you will about the 2016 election that's kind of up in the air but i think that we obviously had a little bit to do with the boris yeltsin election which i'm sure something you'll probably get into so there could be some yeah. kind of lingering tension here so I guess with con with respect to Russia and Iran, do you think which specific areas, or if you want to just go into the possibilities or lack thereof of possible foreign intervention in the economy? It's obviously kind of just like a free question. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think Russia or Iran will have any sort of sway or thing in our election. I mean, usually the relations, the U.S.-Iran relations come down to sanctions on the Iranian economy, which is a I believe killing thousands of people because of a lack of medical supplies that are being allowed to be sent to the country. Mm -hmm. And um, Russia, I think, I don't know, it's, it's similar, but like Putin uh, and like the Russian uh, oligarchy, those people that like basically run the country post the collapse of the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. they have bigger concerns than the American election. Um, uh, the way Russia is shaping up, I do believe it is like, it is technically like an anti-NATO, anti anti you know, Atlantic American Alliance thing, but honestly, that's not really a concern for everyday American citizens and definitely not a concern for election integrity. And I would say the same for people who think that Russia had any sort of hand or any major hand in having Trump win 2016. I believe that that is also nothing that is also ridiculous. So, yeah, so you're, you're, re you're remaining intellectually consistent here, which, okay, I'm, I totally support that. Um, okay, so that's interesting. Um, but, okay. All right. I guess that's interesting. Okay. Um, so, I guess we'll just move on because that's a fairly short segment. I don't really have much to say there because there is no real evidence that these foreign powers are intervening in our election. And it doesn't seem like they have the exactly the wherewithal, the power, the influence, which, you know, they could develop maybe, but it seems unrealistic that they would. So, I think that was a strong answer. Okay. Now, um, as far as foreign relations do go, I think it's important to... Uh, talk about that because that could very well change heavily with the transition of um, the tr transition of leadership we could potentially be seeing here. So, what do you think about how America has represented itself on the foreign stage? You know, thinking about the Paris Climate Accord, things like that. You know, participation in NATO um, with regards to the Trump administration, and then kind of a follow-up question: How do you think that's going to transition with the Biden administration? So, just first, Trump's America's foreign stage basically is the question. Um, I believe, like, um, the general trend by which America interacts with the rest of the foreign nations is similar to how America 
has trended as a global power or an empire in that since the 1970s, I believe it has um, at least not really like not obviously to Americans, but in a sense declined and has been in a continual decline that is not really subject to change, whether you have a Democrat or a Republican in the White House. But regardless, since it is an empire, um, uh, the, the, it must command its subjects. So uh, under Trump, uh, God, how many... How much uh, was pushed in some points in the term to like overthrow uh, people in Venezuela or in Iran and in the Biden? I mean, sorry, let's talk about let's, let's bring up Obama under Obama. Um, there was similar attempts to destabilize Latin American countries. They over I believe they overthrew they coup a government in Honduras. Um, they they did they overthrew Libya, which regardless of what you think about uh, God, what's his name? Gaddafi. Gaddafi. Obviously, he was a. Yeah, Gaddafi, obviously, he was actually, like, I believe he probably committed crimes against humanity. Um, like, you should not have overthrown that because it became a slave market. These policies transcend party, and whether it's Biden or Trump, uh, the next American federal branch will similarly try to overthrow, um, you know, governments in any of the nations that America deems its existential threats to its power, be it, you know, um, Iran, uh, Russia, China, Cuba, Venezuela, and um, maybe even Bolivia. Yeah, those Latin American countries are definitely a big sphere of influence, as we've seen, you know, look at Reagan, who, you know, whatever you think of Reagan, good or bad, I think mostly good, obviously had a pretty high uh, approval rating. He's definitely... Uh, done some things in Latin America. Look at you know the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. So maybe that, like you said, you cited the 1970s, the Cold War. So in essence, has the Cold War truly, truly ended? Like obviously it's not really a proxy war with Russia anymore, as it was more formally established. But it's still a proxy war, uh, a little bit with uh, differing ideologies and still a uh, quest for a increased sphere of, sphere of influence. So I guess the first question is. How would you how would you relate the status today or the kind of foreign tensions we're seeing today to a Cold War period as we've understood it? And then the second question is um, actually no, let's just go with that first, and I'll figure out what the second question was because I just totally forgot it. So just what do you think about mm-hmm. our situation today with regards to what the Cold War was like? Um, I believe it, it can be considered very similar because the the dynamic in the Cold War mostly. Um, never really came down to Soviet aggression, like, except if it was, like, sending, like, some sort of aid or, or guns or whatever to, uh, to groups that had already overthrown certain uh, regimes in, like, Africa or Latin, Latin America or um, even the Middle East. Um, uh, the, the dynamic is the same. It is America versus uh, what would broadly consider its global subjects. So uh, in the Cold War... Uh, God, what do we do? Um, I think in the 80s, we, we overthrew uh, uh, the government of Burkina Faso, which was led by Thomas Sankara, and that was done in the context of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. But then later, we also overthrew, we, we, uh, we attempted many times to overthrow the Venezuelan government under Hugo Chavez. Mm-hmm. Um, and that happened when there was or wasn't a Soviet Union. So if anything, the Cold War was like this sort of cultural and like, uh, front given to the American citizens 
that was basically just a cover for it. This is how an empire operates. An empire must patrol and make sure its um, subject regimes are giving it the resources it needs to continue being an empire. And so the only thing that will really change that is if you have a super strong, like, if you have a super consolidated regime or a super consolidated people-led regime that can, that, that can not allow for foreign interference, which is rare, but possible, or America declines as an empire, which I think the latter is probably what's going to happen in this 21st century. Interesting. Okay. So, all right. So, um, no, there's definitely, so what you're saying is, and I actually really agree with this, is that you, you think there's like kind of like a new or the Cold War provided an inherent justification to provide to continue these actions of upstating. You mentioned uh, Thomas Ankara in Burkina Faso, who uh, actually proved, obviously he was a, a, you know, I believe he was a dictator, but he did improve education some facets, I think. Not sure, not entirely knowledgeable of that. I think William told me about that. Um, so it wasn't entirely terrible. No, he was, um, if I had to say, he no. was essentially doing through, like, um, uh, a harder-line communist ideology, what people like Abel Morales did in Bolivia, mm -hmm. where you, I believe you, like, usher and rise the productive forces of the country and um, essentially grow GDP, and that, but as a byproduct, you also, like, have severe distribution and nationalization of the economy so that uh, the spoils of, like, essentially industrializing and making your country a capitalist nation, at least state capitalist in a sense, or socialist, depending on who you are, mm -hmm. um, you make it so that those spoils are distributed evenly among the people, and that was... That was what they both did, but you can continue. Okay, so no. Sign up. Yeah, I'm just not the most. I've I've heard I've talked maybe twice, three times about that with William, so I'm not like the most knowledgeable on that. Mm -hmm. But I think it, it's very interesting that you brought up that example. It's something that I have 15% like partially knowledge about. So I think that's an interesting example. Mm -hmm. So I think what you're bringing up here is this kind of new justification for the Cold War could be seen as like the same thing for the white man's burden when colonization was happening, you know, that there was this mask justification in order to expand an empire, say, hypothetically, the British people, um, in order to extract resources from, obviously, Africa, you have, you know, Asia, you have the Pacific, you have, you know, basically everywhere in the world, some continent, there was a sphere of British influence all under the idea of, you know, white man's burden and a cultural... Um, and religious supremacy and the need to spread that. And that's obviously with various other colonizers too. So I think that's a very good example you provide. And that's why I would strongly agree with you that, yes, I don't think it's really that this proxy war, this kind of uh, regime, or I guess you could say uh, handling of subjects hasn't ended. It's just the justifications have changed since the dissolution of a rival empire. So I think that's an excellent point that you bring up. An interesting uh, video by uh, Bashar al-Assad, who is the president of Syria currently, I believe it was October 31st of this year, he said that, um, so I'm just kind of going to transition to an actual like contrast of predictions, your predictions, my predictions of, you know, the differences of what Biden would do in specific areas, would he kind of move towards decolonization, or would he continue on that path of establishing spheres of influence? Uh, Bashar al-Assad said that he thought that Trump was the best president because of his transparency and that obviously since the 70s he actually used literally the same context that you used um, that you know the politics have always been driven towards oil and money and riches so um, 
that it's that's undoubtedly just American politics. It's not any one leader doing that. It's just kind of what we've moved to in terms of like you know lobbies and things like obviously way more factors than just who is the sitting president, who has a lot less power than we obviously give credit to. Um, so I think he said that Trump was just very open about it. He was like, we want your oil, you know, we want, we'll pay this for the service, et cetera. So how do you think that attitude of foreign policy is going to change within the Biden administration? So basically, to kind of phrase this question succinctly, what do you think the key differences and where we stand as this empire that you described, how would it change under a Biden administration? We'll kind of go back and forth on, the, on that. I'm really not sure it would at least in terms of foreign policy, like if it was a different candidate, if it was Bernie Sanders, then I would say there's a strong possibility that um, the, the easing of sanctions on countries and like uh, the actual restructuring of uh, world banking institutions like the IMF for the World Bank so that they're less uh, stomping, like boot on the neck of like uh, <clears throat> third world developing countries. Um, if he was the nominee, but Joe Biden is the nominee. And Joe Biden, um, got it. I mean, like in the most obvious sense, his tweets are things like, "We we stand, we stand with Juan Guaido," and uh, like unelected leaders of like uh, regimes in Latin America, and they're even he was even be considering being a hawk on like China. And I, I like the point you said about white men's burden being similar to the Cold War, because I think it shows that like underlying these cultural, um, underlying these cultural. Uh, affects and these cultural phenomenons in in the world like it's like it's super sort of superstructure there's like a certain base in the material reality of why those things happen the base informs that that superstructure and um so the base is um uh like uh uh the america or britain in the 19th century was an, is an empire and so they have to control their subjects but that must manifest itself in a culture and like in, a, in an ideology that people can buy and believe in, and that would be the white man's burden mm -hmm. for um, uh, Cold War. And that happened, uh, and that will obviously remain the same under Biden. Um, I think uh, the the president of Syria, Bashar al-Assad, I mean, I think he has a point in that, uh, you know, Trump is up front, but Biden and Biden would do the same thing. Um, I don't know if Biden would probably say less mean things about Muslims in the media, and that would, that could, in a, in a uh, like a God, in like a pinball machine way, caused less stochastic like violence against Muslims, but I don't think it's like consequential enough where you can confidently say if Biden were to win the presidency that we will finally see former colonies and uh, Latin American nations actually have freedom. And that will not occur under Biden, especially considering the people that are going to be led into this administration, mm -hmm. which is like people who were in the Bush two administration. Like those are the kinds of people. In the Biden administration, and those are unfortunately for now the kind of people that make up the Democratic Party. Yeah, I think that's an excellent yeah. point that you raised. So uh, you mentioned easing of sanctions. You mentioned lowering, you know, kind of raising the boot off the neck. I guess the um, the question I have here for is for Bernie, not for Biden. For Bernie, yes, but uh, but um, the question yeah. the question would be, mm -hmm. what other potential solutions do you see to kind of not making us more of an autarkial you know, country and less of a more, you know, um, submersive or, uh, how do you say, uh, interventionist, maybe uh, involved for global empire type of mm -hmm. uh, country. How would we transition well from a more foreign-based 
you know, empire to a more domestic, autarkial one, how would we ease the boot on the neck, as you said? What are your solutions to that? I'm just curious. Well, I mean, uh, I'm one person, and uh, I don't think solutions like that come easily. I believe if, it, it's, if it's even possible, it would require intense, like, organization of people in this country willing to um, disrupt flows of, like, income and wealth through, like, labor stoppages or things like that. And that requires such an intense feeling of, like, uh, solidarity among the peoples of, like, the third world that it's kind of hard to see it happening in the near term. Mm -hmm. um, God, the, the inadvertent way that where it could happen would probably be the declining of one empire and the obvious rising of another empire, both of which are inevitable. And of course, I'm talking about um, the Chinese and um, their expansion. They will, it is inevitable, um, they will eventually eclipse America. And because of that, inadvertently, I mean, I don't know if America will have less power, but, you know, maybe they wouldn't. Maybe if they would, then nations, um, especially in Latin America, that are geographically kind of distant from Asia, but um, close to America, might inadvertently, um, you know, be better. But I'm not, not sure if that would happen. I mean, uh, the political solutions required in order for, Amer for America to be less of, a, of an interventionist state that uh, crushes the will of the people in the third world would is a huge political project like that's that's intensely challenging to do and mm -hmm. i i would be interested in pursuing it obviously but um it takes a lot of strategy and especially organizing organizing people that's the key if you want to do that yeah i think that's a very interesting answer i think you know what you're talking about is basically like uh, solutions that aren't even controlled by us that's just another nation another nation other people having a inherent you know growth and thus a increase an increased sphere of influence so i think that's an interesting you made a claim obviously i'm gonna kind of push on this you made a claim that eventually china is going to eclipse america in terms of political economic whatever you want to call it power so how exactly do you back up this claim i'm just obviously there's reason to it i'm not doubting the reason to it. i'm just saying you know give your reasoning for that um it's kind of just like, it's not because of the uh, actions of any one political leader, especially in America. Like no American president can really stop this. It's kind of just the way the, the access to materials and the consolidation of a political power happens over time. And the way it works is the, uh, if you want to call it a ruling class, the American ruling class is kind of in many ways, not holding power, not keeping power, not keeping popular legitimacy among its the people of its nation like the way um the 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 ruling communist party of china the name would do because like i believe god and the way it's going to work in america just a prediction uh i don't know when uh social security is supposed to run out of money like the next four years that is something uh that could be funded like pretty easily and it's this actually i'll use the postal service that could be funded very easily it could be saved but it's probably not going to be saved because the American ruling class um, in this time of uh, decline for empire will turn inwards to their public services mm -hmm. that for years have essentially um, kept um, America like a, a, a sustainable place to live. And they will turn inwards and take that in order to keep advancing their own like wealth and profits. While the Communist Party of China, um, yes, of course, obviously they 
they encamp Uyghurs, and obviously they suppress Tibetans, and obviously they're uh, obviously they're they're suppressing the will of the Hong Kong people. Regardless of all of that, they I think they were able to clamp down on on uh, corruption, and I think they're able to do massive state state spending in order to build up infrastructure for the country that would um, allow it to keep being like an effective nation state. Like I think rail they built a lot of high speed railroads in ten years. Um, they raised wages, I believe, and uh, again, they apparently purged corruption in the party. And that's just something the American political class will not do because there's no popular will to it yet, and there's no uh, will amongst themselves to do it. And so because of that, um, America's trajectory will be downward, and Chinese trajectory will be upward in terms of who has more to say in the global world market or sphere or whatever interesting that's a very interesting point i mean yeah uh it seems so okay there's obviously a contrast to what you're saying here with obviously you know as the power of the leader or the ruling class which would be the people that are having the private goods funneled funneled to or are giving the the, the private goods to their constituents it's like this ruling class this winner's circle if you will in this electorate model uh are going to inherently lead to it's kind of like a horseshoe it's like they're going to lead to their own unsuccess because of the devolution of the nation due to yes. a decrease mm-hmm. of public goods okay that's a very interesting theory it, it seems adjacent to horseshoe theory i think that's something interesting to uh maintain and i think with regards to welfare i think that the issue is that a lot of people what a lot of people aren't seeing what people aren't so eager to develop welfare is that there is obviously this is more of a uh more of a right economic theory is that uh welfare isn't going to the people who deserve it or it's not going to it's not going in the way they deserve instead of economic opportunity it's going towards the the modes of cash which was an fdr obviously this was 1935 this is when these programs started in this new federalism so I think those are all interesting points to bring up. I think we're approaching the hour uh, timeline, which is usually how long my episodes run. So I want to thank you for being on at such, on such an early notice. And I think you are very punctual, very obviously very professional and very polite. And uh, definitely qualities for a solid political science major, a political scientist. Obviously, that's subject to change, as you said. So I just wanted to thank you for being on the episode, having this uh, yeah, talk. Yeah. And... Um, that's really it. Thanks a lot for for hopping on this, and hopefully we'll get more episodes, more people like you, and definitely we're going to have uh, future episodes with you as the podcast evolves. So thanks a lot for doing this, and uh, obviously stay safe, and thank you to everyone who's watching, and just uh, support the channel in whatever way you can to keep it going. Thanks a lot, guys.